0: I remember hearing a, an account of uh, some of the Calvary pastors that are at one of the uh, Calvary pastors' conference in, in America. And I believe it was um, Joe Foch and John, Don McClure that were sitting down next to each other. And Chuck Smith got up to, to preach, and as typical Chuck Smith used to do, he just used to stand there and just take that moment, just drawing his strength from the Lord. And then he just started and said, In the beginning. And Don turned to Joe and said, This is going to be a long one. Well,. I started off at one point, I had one point this week, we had over a thousand slides as we journey through the book of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, you'll be pleased to know I have cut that down a little, so we haven't got that many slides, but there is so much here, and unfortunately there's so many things we've had to kind of cut out that are just wonderful, God's word is inexhaustible, um, and even then, with a thousand slides, that's still just skimming the surface, um, so we've cut down, we've only got about 500, so we'll be done by about 3 o'clock, no, no, just joking. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that in your word is everything that we need for this life. Lord, everything that we need to understand our own sinful nature and everything we need to understand your mercy and your grace and your goodness. Everything we need to understand that there is a way that we can be saved, that we can be set free from sin, set free from our own wicked, sinful human natures, from all those things that, Lord, pull us down. And we thank you, Lord, that your word... Speaks to us. It is alive. It's living and powerful. This morning, as we turn to these, these scriptures, Father, just speak to us again. Open our hearts, our minds, Lord, that we would receive from your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you teach us this morning and just do your work of convicting in our lives. That we would not be unbelieving, but that we would believe. We give you this time now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've come in our journey through the Bible up to First Chronicles. First Chronicles, the first nine chapters... We're going to get an overview of the genealogies going right from Adam through to Jacob, and then from Jacob through to King David, and from David through to Zedekiah, who was the last king to sit on the throne of Israel. We're going to see then the tribal allotments, the things that were agreed under Joshua. And then from chapters 10 through 29, we're going to get David's reign at Jerusalem. David was the anointed of the Lord. And then we're going to have the Ark of the Lord uh, explained and how that was moved to Jerusalem. Then the covenant of the Lord uh, is brought to us. And then, of course, the temple of the Lord, this thing that was on David's heart to build a permanent dwelling on earth um, where God's presence would be, where the Ark would reside and so on. Second Chronicles moves on in the history of the nation, and we get to Solomon's forty-year reign. The first nine chapters of Second Chronicles deal with that, and we see Solomon's kingdom established and all the work that he did. The real zenith of the kingdom, as it were. And then we go on and look at Judah's history. So you remember the kingdom divides into north and south. We see that. And then really we focus on the 20 kings of Judah that follow on, finally ending with this deportation to Babylon. Just to remind you again, we're dealing with historical facts. These things actually took place. The records uh, are just overwhelming. Um, we looked at Bible study, and I've cut it out because there's not time. A great quote from Robert Dick Wilson, um, incredible expert that studied these things for over 40 years. His conclusion was there's not a single page of the Old Testament about which we need to have any doubt whatsoever. That's after 40 years of, of studying, reading over nine different uh, ancient Semitic languages and so on. He memorized the entire New Testament. That's an expert, and he says, we don't need to have any doubt about the things that we're reading here. Well, if we look at an overview of the the books, firstly... And the Hebrew title, I'm not even going to bother trying to pronounce it, but it simply means the words concerning the days. That's what the Hebrew title means. And Chronicles originally was counted as one book. When we find that the text was translated into Greek, Greek is a more elaborate language, there's more letters in the Greek, there's no vowels in Hebrew. So the problem was with scrolls, you couldn't fit everything on the scroll. So they started splitting the books up. That's why we end up with first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and first and second Chronicles. It was simply a practical way of getting getting all this information onto a scroll. Well, the Septuagint has this uh, title, um, Paralipoimena, uh, which just means supplements. It's additions, in a sense, to that which we read in First and Second Kings. It's the Latin Vulgate that was translated about 400 AD by Jerome. Uh, he translates it, or the title of the book, as Chromicon, which is, of course, where we get our title from today. First and Second Kings deal really primarily with the history of Israel. So that's the Northern Kingdom. And then First and Chronicles deal primarily with the history of Judah, the southern kingdom. Some see Kings as dealing with the political and Chronicles as dealing with the religious. But actually there's religious and political elements in both. Um, but as you study this, you'll see that Kings is very much focusing on the northern and Chronicles very much on the southern kingdom. They... Both take this form of a history, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, that really starts with Adam. It goes through looking at Saul, but only briefly, and ending with this decree of Cyrus, the famous Persian king, in around about 538-537 BC. uh, This decree is made to allow all the captives, the exiles, to return home. In the British Museum in London, uh, there's the steel of Cyrus, this cylinder upon which is this decree that Cyrus had made, allowing the captive nations to return to their homelands. Well, David and Judah, we're going to see are the focal points uh, as we go through this, with the emphasis also on the priestly and Levitical orders and so on. But it's interesting, there's a lot of external references that are mentioned as well. Uh, we find the book of the annals of King David is referred to, uh, the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, the book of the kings of Judah and Israel, mentioned seemingly as a separate book, the book of the kings of Israel, the annuals of the kings of Israel, the records of Samuel the seer, the seer being a prophet, uh, Uh, The records of Nathan the prophet, the records of Gad the seer, and there's others as well. So there's a lot of different external sources that the Chronicle here uh, has pulled together um, to give us this overview, this account. Well, if we look at things on the timeline of history, there is, of course, nothing that's prehistoric. It's a word that we've uh, become familiar with, but history starts with in the beginning. You can't have anything before the beginning. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens, the earth, and we have the history of the world laid out through Scripture Genesis covers a large part of of our history, Uh, one of the reasons it's a book that's so attacked by critics and scholars today, or so-called scholars. But we're focusing on this area here, so this period of time really moving on from Saul, David, Solomon and the monarchy of Israel up to the time of the exile. If we zoom in on the time of the monarchy, of course we've had Samuel, uh, the last of the judges of Israel, and then Saul becomes the first of the kings in the monarchy of Israel. David becomes then the next king following on from Saul, and then Solomon. Uh, Again, familiar history for us, I'm sure. And then the kingdom divides. We have the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, the northern kingdom goes into the Assyrian exile. The Assyrians come and take them away captive. And then Judah go into the Babylonian exile, were taken to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, First and Second Samuel cover this period of time uh, up to really the beginning of Solomon's reign, and then First Kings, Second Kings take us through to the end of the monarchy. Uh, if we look, we see Elijah and Elisha we're kind of straddling the part at the end of First Kings and Elisha, beginning at the ministry of, of, of two kings is when he uh, served the Lord. And, that which we read in scripture. So if we look at Chronicles, Chronicles spans just a short part really in terms of history, although it will go back right to the beginning, right to Genesis, um, the actual history we're given really is David's history. Uh, And then 2 Chronicles really spans the rest of the monarchy. So that's what we'll be looking at as we go through. So let's jump straight in. In chapter 1, We're going to find these genealogies that are given to us. And if you remember, when we went through the book of Genesis, we saw the same thing. This occurs in Genesis chapter 5, but it's reiterated at the opening of the book of Chronicles. Now again, there's no meaningless details in the Bible. And we have these names given to us. Again, if we look at those names, we understand that each Hebrew name has meaning. It has a specific meaning itself. A lot of our names have meanings. If you trace back, um, my name, Barry, means sharp or spear-like. I quite like that. I'm not sure that's what my mum and dad had in mind, but nevertheless. Um, Adam just means man. Seth means appointed, uh, and so on. Methuselah, we actually told in the scripture, his name specifically means his death shall bring. Lamech means to lament. These words, some of them have kind of translated into our culture today. Lament is the word that we have. And so we find that these names have meaning. But what's incredible is that this genealogy, this list of real people that lived, if we look at what their names mean, we find something incredible. We find Adam, his name means man. We have man is appointed, mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. That is the Christian gospel concealed in the Jewish Torah two and a half thousand years before Jesus came. How did that get there if it's not by supernatural design? This is just the fingerprints of God that we see here. There's no way that a Jew would have conspired to try and put this into their beloved Torah. They reject the Christian gospel. And yet it's there. It's unmistakable. And you can trace the roots of these names back. And you can see that this list of names just tells, in the particular order that we have it, the gospel. Incredible. It's been said before that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and that's one example of it. But the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Well, as we go on in First Chronicles, we then get to what's referred in Genesis chapter 10 as the table of nations, and uh, incredible study, Bill Cooper's book, After the Flood, goes through these uh, an immense, incredible details, drawing at the, the historicity. Up in London, Lambeth Palace, there's a, um, a family tree that traces the kings and queens of this country right the way back to Noah. Incredible. People reject the Bible. They say they don't believe it, they don't trust it. Why? Most people that make those comments are totally ignorant of the overwhelming weight of evidence to support what we have in Scripture. Well, Japheth is one of the sons of Noah, and we're given his details here. Japheth's descendants after the flood spread out around the world, but particularly into the areas of Europe. So we are, as Europeans, a descendant from Japheth. Principal names of note there, Magog, Gomer, Meshach, particularly of interest from a prophetic point of view. We'll deal with that as we go further through the Bible. The next uh, key individual that's mentioned in this list of names is Ham, another one of the sons of Noah. He had a son uh, called Cush. Cush was responsible for building the Tower of Babel and his son Nimrod was really responsible for the first world government, the first world religion and so on. And ever since that time, the world has been trying to get back to that point and we are standing on the edge as we live now in these days of, again, another one world religion. It's interesting how many people are saying, oh, it's the same God. doesn't matter what you call your God. It's still the same God. All roads lead to God. Well, you know, if that's true, God is barbaric and cruel because God is allowing different religions to fight each other and, you know, and so on. If it's all going the same place, why would that happen? No, no, no. They're not all the same God. There is one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. All the others have come from this route that started with Nimrod and they can be traced back there, every other religion on the planet. Well, the descendants of Ham spread out typically into the areas um, in North Africa, Libya, uh, Egypt, Mizraim, Kush is uh, Ethiopian area. We have uh, Saudi Arabia also and also China, a uh, descendant from Ham. And then also the Canaanites particularly, these nations that Israel was specifically tasked with dealing with when they moved into the Promised Land. And we've covered the reasons for that. Some people see it, that it was kind of genocide. Not at all. If you understand the reasons behind it, it makes perfect sense why God gave Israel these commands. Well, finally, Shem, and this is where now the chronicler is most interested because we have now the descendants of Shem. They mainly centred in the areas of the Middle East. And, of course, one of the descendants of Shem, as we follow this line all the way through, we come down here, eventually to Abraham, or the same is Abraham. God renamed Abraham. Well, Terah, who is Abraham's father... We find that has these three sons: Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And also, by another wife, he has a daughter called Sarai. Well, Sarai marries Abraham. And if you remember, there's a little bit of controversy at one point where Abraham says she's my sister to the king of Egypt, and he finds out that actually that is uh, he's also the wife. And so anyway, but he was the wife and the sister. Half sister. Well, they have uh, children that Isaac is their own child, but also as a result of the situation with Hagar, Ishmael is born as well. Nahor has his children, uh, Bethel being uh, the top one there being of most note to us. Haran also had uh, three children that we have mentioned in scripture. Well, Abraham looks after Lot. You remember the account in Genesis because Haran dies young. Bethel himself, uh, he obviously marries and he has two children that are mentioned Rebekah and Laban. Well, Rebekah then eventually marries Isaac, and then they have two children, Esau and Jacob. Laban, Rebekah's brother, marries, and he has two girls, Leah and Rachel, and they're the two girls that end up marrying Jacob, and it's from their relationship, and their, their um, servant ladies as well, Bilhah and Ziphar, um they have the, these two other ladies as well. So the four women, and through them come the twelve tribes of Israel. But also descended from Lot, um, just out of point of references, Moab and Ammon. From where come the Moabites and the Ammonites? Abraham himself mentioned 74 times in the New Testament, venerated by all three monotheistic religions—by Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. He has these distinctive titles in the Bible: the father of the faithful and friend of God. Incredible title to be given to someone. Well. As we carry on through the first chapter of Chronicles, again, we're given this generational breakdown uh, of Abraham and his descendants and so on. And so we find that if we look at the way this breaks down, Sarah obviously gives Isaac to Abraham. Hagar, his servant girl, gives him Ishmael. And then after Sarah has died, he marries this lady called Keturah and has a number of children as a result of that relationship as well. Under uh, one of those offspring come Sheba and Dedan, which is the area of Saudi Arabia today. Uh, and Midian also, uh, is from, from their descendants, is where the Bedouins uh, typically come from as well. Again, all these things can be traced. This is just history. Uh, if we look at Ishmael's descendants, a number of different names that are mentioned there. And of course, Isaac's descendants, uh, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, of course, being the one the chronicle is most interesting because it's in this line that will come down to Jesus. Well, all of those ones that you can see highlighted there are typically what we refer to today as the Arabs. That's all of that group together. So it's not one particular. Some people look at Saudi Arabia or certain countries today. But actually all of those descendants, really, of Abraham fall into that bracket. Okay, chapter 2, we then get the genealogy of Judah. And, of course, we're interested, as we go through this, in this line that will come down, ultimately, to the Messiah. So we're given, first of all, the 12 tribes that are mentioned. But then specific mention is made of Judah. And then Judah has these three children, of which they end up dying because he marries a Canaanite wife, which God had forbidden, but he went ahead and did it anyway. And then we find he has his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and through this relationship, she ends up bearing in two children, Perez. And Zerah. Now, Pherez is of interest because that's where this line comes down. Then we find that Hezrom is the one that next. We follow this, this sequence through, and we can follow all the way through from Hezron to Ram to Abinadab. Nashon, we're taught, is a prince of the children of Judah, so this is the time of Moses and, and so on after that as well. And then we find that Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz. Boaz is a name we know from the book of Ruth. Ruth marries Boaz, this wonderful kinsman, redeemer, very much a type of Jesus Christ. And then we find that Boaz has his child, Obed, and then eventually that comes down, uh, Obed has Jesse, and then Jesse's youngest son is David. And this is what the chronicler is trying to get us to, to this point here. So he's bringing in, you know, this whole line, all the way down from Adam, all the way down to King David. Joab also mentioned they're a cousin of David. Joab becomes David's military general, uh, and we're given some of those details in this list also. Well, we move swiftly into chapter 3, and we're given the genealogy of David himself. Um, of specific mention, Absalom, this son that ends up uh, rising up in rebellion against David, but also Adonijah. Now this is, he ends up as the eldest child, he's actually the fourth eldest, but uh, by the time we get to the death of David, he's now the oldest surviving. And he makes a play for the throne, and Solomon has to to deal with him accordingly. Uh, And then we're given the details of the children that are actually born to David when he was in Hebron originally. Uh, In this period of time where he's reigning, not over the whole of the, the nation, but for seven and a half years he reigns. And then finally in Jerusalem for 33 years, the rest of the children. And of course, of note there, we have Solomon, who will be the one, from a kingly point of view, the royal line comes through. But Nathan also, another son of David. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew takes his genealogy down through Solomon, looking at the royal line. Matthew's Gospel, he's concerned about the king of Israel. And so he brings this royal line. Luke is not bothered about the kingly side. He's looking at the humanity of Jesus very much. Uh, and we have this royal, or this line, that comes down through Nathan. And uh, there's some very interesting studies you can go through and see why uh, these things were so. Um, so Jesus, if you look in Matthew and Luke, you've got two different genealogies. Well, One of them comes down this line from Solomon, and that comes down to uh, Joseph, who was Jesus' legal earthly father. And the line through Nathan comes down to Mary. So those both sides uh, come in. And then we're told in uh, 1 Chronicles 3 verse 11 that these were all the sons of David beside the sons of the concubines and Tamar their sister. So David has a number of wives as we can see there and obviously then the sons that come as a result of those relationships and then a number of other children again uh, that are mentioned in the text uh, and by concubines and so on. Well Solomon and Nathan I said become of key interest as we move forward but we then read in chapter 3 verse uh, section, uh, Solomon's son was Rehoboam. It's interesting, out of all of the sons that Solomon no doubt, had, Rehoboam is the only one that we have any specific mention of. But at this point, the kingdoms divide. We have the northern kingdom of Israel, there's 19 kings that range for about 250 years, seven different dynasties, not one family line, different dynasties, chopping and changing. And eventually in 721-722 BC, around about that time, they go into Assyria as captives, And the southern kingdom then, Judah, this is David's family line. We find 20 kings over about 370 years of history. And it's just one dynasty, David's family line. But eventually they also go into captivity in Babylon in 606 BC, the first of three sieges uh, for 70 years. And eventually they come back to their own land. And we're going to look at some of those details uh, a little bit more as we go through into Second Chronicles in a short while. But we're told that Solomon's son was Rehoboam, and then we're given then this line of kings that come down. Uh, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, ah- Ahaziah, Joash, uh, Amaziah, uh, Azariah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, uh, Ammon, Josiah, and then we're given these last group, uh, uh, Johanan, uh, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, And then Shalom. Zedekiah is the last king to sit on the throne, and we'll look at that in a short while. Uh, So we get down. There's actually two Zedekiahs uh, that we read about. One was a a son of uh, Joash, the other one was his, his grandson. So. That's the history then of the kings of Judah as we look down, starting from about 985 BC where the kingdom divides under Sol- after Solomon with Rehoboam. Uh, and they go through, the green ones are the good kings. These are the ones that we're told serve the Lord. And we'll look at some scriptures in just a moment. And you can see as we go through, there was one queen in the list, Athaliah. We'll comment on her in a short while. And then we have the prophets, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, during this kind of period of history, when uh, King uh, Azariah, or Aziah, as he's also known, uh, was on the throne. Micah, Hosea, Isaiah, uh, particularly around the reign of Hezekiah. Zephaniah and Jeremiah covering this period of history as well. So we see all these things interlinking. And really, when we get to the end of Chronicles, in many ways we've got to the end of the Old Testament. What we then find is that we start to look at the prophets who were speaking to the nation during this period of of time. Chapter four of Chronicles. We start now to see the tribal allotments and where the people ended up. It's just kind of a recapping, uh, as it were, that the Chronicles giving us here. Well, Judah and Simeon ended up in this region, uh, southern Israel interestingly it's in there that we find the prayer of jabez many of you will have heard of the prayer of jabez it became a very big thing in christian circles of some years ago now and people made way more of it than should have been made of it it led on to all sorts of you know let's just wish for whatever we want and god will give it to us kind of thing but that's found in first chronicles chapter 4 verse 10 as we move on we then get the tribes that settled on the east side of the jordan so we have manasseh and gad and reuben that settled over that side of the jordan Again, this is just giving you a summary. But we're then given a a, a summary of the descendants of Levi. Now, Levi weren't actually given a specific place of their own. The rest of the tribes, we find, were actually given specific areas of the, the land of Israel that they had as their own. You can see there on the map the different tribes and the different geographical regions. But Levi themselves were told, a prophecy again that goes all the way back to Genesis, that they wouldn't be given their own land. Instead, they were given 48 cities, but six of them became these cities of refuge. If somebody had committed a crime and they were being chased by a, uh, a relative or whatever, they could flee to one of these cities and they could stay there. They would be safe, providing they remained in this city of refuge. And we've talked before how these in themselves speak of Jesus Christ, how we are safe if we are in Jesus Christ. The moment somebody stepped outside the city, they lost that protection. It's just an interesting note that we're safe when we are in Jesus Christ. If we are saved, if we are born again, then we are saved for eternity. Chapter 7 then, we're given uh, the genealogies of the northern tribes, so the the top end of Israel here. Um, Sorry, just go back there for you. So uh, these tribes right at the top end uh, of Israel. And then we're given chapter 8, the genealogy of Benjamin, which sit down just at the top end of the Dead Sea. Chapter 9 then, breaks down the leaders, the priests, the Levites, and so on. And we read in uh, First Chronicles 9, So all Israel were reckoned by genealogies, and behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, who were carried away to Babylon for their transgression. So we're given this summary, and in a sense jumping straight to the conclusion of what's going to happen. We read on verse 19, And Shalom the son of Kor, the son of Ebersaph, the son of Korah, and his brethren of the house of his father, the Korites, uh, were over the work Of the service, keepers of the gates of the tabernacle, and their fathers, being over the host of the Lord, were keepers of the entry. In other words, doorkeepers. Now, I just pulled this particular part out. A lot of detail is given in these these, uh, verses, but this particular mention is made of the sons of Korah. Now, you may remember Korah was an individual who, along with some of his uh, colleagues, ended up uh, being swallowed up by the earth. They rebelled against Moses, and God dealt very swiftly with them. But his descendants didn't get involved. And then Psalm 84 is actually headed to the chief musician upon Gittith, some sort of instrument, a psalm for the sons of Korah. Okay, So this psalm is is for them. It says, How amiable, how lovely are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And then jumping to verse 10, we read, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. No doubt thinking back to their forefathers who'd made these stupid mistakes, rebelling against God, and have been judged accordingly. And they're saying, I'd rather serve God and just be a doorkeeper. What a privilege it is to serve God in any capacity. That we be given the privilege of serving the God that made everything incredible. And they make mention of this in Psalm 84, a wonderful psalm. Well, chapter 10 details the death of Saul, which just a very quick uh, fly past, in a sense, and we're actually told that Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it, and inquired not of the Lord. Therefore he slew him and turned the kingdom Unto David the son of Jesse, so Saul is now moved off the scene, and David now becomes king. And the next couple of chapters, 11 through 12, really detail the reign of David. And we read in chapter 11, the opening verse Then all Israel gathered themselves to David unto Hebron, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. And moreover, in time past, even when Saul was our king, thou wast he that led us out and broughtest us in, in Israel. And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be ruler. Over my people Israel. So the nation acknowledging that David is their rightful king. And we read, Therefore came all the elders of Israel to the king, to Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. So David finally now becomes king. As part of these lists then that go on in these chapters, we're told of the the key people that surrounded David. You know, it's a great honor to serve as we've just mentioned in any capacity and there are a number of people that are highlighted here that David had around him he had three that were very very close there was another 30 that were very faithful very loyal servants to him and that were always looking out for him and so on and just some of the names and I'm leaving these details in there although I'm not going through them specifically they're in the slides and you can obviously uh, go through and look at them afterwards Well, we move then into chapters 13 through 16, and the primary um, topic there is the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember the Ark, this wooden box overlaid in gold, inside of which was the law that Moses had been given, the Ten Commandments, also Aaron's rod that abutted and and so on, and a jar of the manna contained within the Ark. Well, this box, which Israel put so much hope and trust in, it got captured by the Philistines. It had got taken from the place where it had been, uh, Shiloh. Uh, it had been taken out when Eli the priest and his sons were, were there. It's taken out to the battlefield. The Philistines are fearful because they think this is the box that defeated the Egyptians. No, it wasn't that at all. It wasn't that. It was God that had been the one, not the box itself. Nevertheless, um, this box gets taken. Uh, it's moved eventually down to Ashdod in uh, Philistine territory then to Garth and then to Ekron and they have all sorts of problems they have an outbreak of hemorrhoids and all sorts of other things go on and tumours and so on eventually they send it back they don't want it anymore Um, you know the world can't cope with the things of God it gets very confused by them uh, and so on anyway they they send it back and it comes back to this place originally uh, Beth Shemesh finally ends up at uh, Gibeah and it's from there that David then moves this Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. Of course it is very symbolic for the nation. It became very much a focal point reminding them of the covenant that God had made with them. Well chapter 17 we then read of David's real desire to build a temple. Somewhere he's saying yeah I've got this wonderful lavish temple but God's Ark is resting in a tent. And so Originally, Nathan says to him, go on, go ahead, do whatever you want to do. And then God uh, speaks to Nathan and says, pretty much, uh, you need to check with me before you speak. Has to go back to David and says, actually, you're not going to do it, but Solomon, your son, will do it. And so, chapter 17, we get really a recount of uh, a lot of the things we saw in 2 Samuel 7. Again, 2 Samuel 7, one of the most pivotal chapters in the Bible. Understanding David's, or the covenant that God makes with David, to put a descendant of David on the throne of Israel forever. That means even today that covenant stands as far as God is concerned. And if you want to understand what's going on in the Middle East and why there's so much controversy over Israel and the problems that are going on in that that area in the Middle East, then you need to understand what God said in 2 Samuel 7. Chapter 18, we deal with David's conquests and subjugation of the Philistines, Moabites, uh, Arameans, Edomites and so on. And really brings us to the, the height of David's career. David was a victorious warrior, warrior and a very clever general. He subdued the Philistines to the west, the Syrians and Hadazes in the north, the, the Ammonites and the Moabites in the east, and the Edomites and the Amalekites in the south. But also he was a wonderfully constructive administrator. He brought justice to all the people. He also organized the priesthood into 24 courses. We'll mention that in just a moment. And he was a major poet and, of course, songwriter, as we know. We have the Book of Psalms, a large proportion of which were attributed to David. If we look at David's kingdom at its height, the kingdom proper you can see highlighted in yellow there. Well, the other areas that became vassal states, in a sense, again, under uh, the control of of David and Israel, uh, highlighted Philistines, the Ammonites, and Hamath. And then those that acknowledged Israelite sovereignty, uh, the Aramaeans, Moabites, and Edomites, and so on. So you get the picture of the, the extent... But the kingdom grew under David. Well, chapter 19 again gives more details about uh, the subjugation of the Ammonites. Chapter 20, the Philistines. And then in chapter 21, we're given details of this census. Now, very much this is an issue of pride on David's part. And we read in First Chronicles 21 that Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, that's from the north to the south, and bring the number of them to me. Did I may know it? It's very much a case of not trusting God. Joab does do what he's asked to do, even though he protests a bit. And we find that there's just over a million men in Israel, and there's approaching 500,000 in Judah. But Joab doesn't count the Levites or the Benjamites. Some speculate it's because, of course, the Levites were exempt from military duty. And it may be that before he got to the end of counting, um, God had already stepped in and spoken to David, uh, whatever the reason. It could have just simply been that Joab had had enough of this. He didn't want to do it. He recognized it as pride on David's part very much it was a case of unbelief. You know, it was simply David doubting God's abilities to sustain, to protect. David is putting strength in the flesh, in what he can do. You know, Before a holy God, we are nothing. We have nothing we can bring to the table. And David had to learn many times, many ways, that we have to trust God, not our own abilities, our own strength, our own wisdom. God knows way more than we do. Just as an interesting aside, you'll find a couple of names mentioned, Ornan and Aruna. As a result of this census, David opts that God will punish him by sending a plague. That plague is stopped at this place above Jerusalem, just north of uh, the, the town, as it will we'll show you in a minute. And we find that the name Ornan is mentioned, paid six hundred shekels of gold, uh, but that's for the entire site. Another name is mentioned, which is Aruna, um, and some people get confused as these individuals. It seems that Ornan had the entire site, owned the entire site. Aruna um, seemed to have just the, the threshing floor itself, and oxen, and so on that David purchases for fifty shekels of silver. So, if you see both of those names in connection with this, that just hopefully clarifies a little bit. We've got two individuals. Hence the two different amounts. Uh, Runa was one of David's chief friends uh, and spared by him when he took the citadel. Uh, That's recorded by Josephus. Well, If we look at a map of Jerusalem, this is during the time of the kings and particularly David's time. uh, We find we've got Mount Zion on the west and the Mount of Olives on the east. And then there's two valleys uh, as well. Uh, either side, there's the Tropian Valley uh, between Mount Zion and the city, and the Kidron Valley, uh, still there to this day, uh, on the other side. And then below, on the, the south side, you've got the Hinnom Valley. We'll mention that later. Uh, has a, a role to play in itself. Well, the city was this lower part. And then this threshing floor is where the temple is eventually built, up here. And when we get right up the top here... This is the place, Mount Moriah, where Abraham came to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, is the very same place where some 2,000 years later, another father would offer up his son, where God allowed Jesus to be offered for our sin. Incredible details played out through history. Psalm 118, verse 8 and 9, David making mention of some of the lessons he'd learned. He says, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. In Psalm seventy one, David said, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me let me never be put to confusion. You know, we do sometimes learn those lessons, but we're much better if we can learn them sooner rather than later. The lesson that we need to learn over and above everything else is that we can trust God and we should trust God in every situation of our lives. It's quite simple. We need to ask ourselves a couple of basic questions. And that is, do we really trust God? We say we do, of course, but we're told that without faith it's impossible to please him. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit would come he'd convict the world of sin and the specific sin that's referenced there is because they believe not on me. You see, whenever we try and take matters in our own hands it's unbelief, it's a lack of faith. We're told in Romans 14, 23 For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Okay, let's move on. Chapter 22, we find that the plans for the temple are given by God to David. It wasn't just David's idea, God actually gives these plans for the temple. And in chapter 23, a very interesting situation. Um, we start to find the priesthood is organised and arranged. There was 38,000 Levites available. David divides them into four units. Now, There's 24,000 of the priests that are given this work of, to supervise the work of the temple and so on. There's 4,000 that are musicians. Some band, I think, yeah? 4,000 as doorkeepers. Again, sons of Korah would have been amongst that number. Uh, and They would look after the temple, the treasuries, the storerooms and so on. And then another six thousand to be scattered throughout the nation to minister as judges and teachers of the law. so this is the way David arranged uh, the Levites and gave the duties he gave to them. Well, when we get to chapter twenty four interestingly enough we find that these 24 courses of priests are actually broken down and, and given to us in detail. Now this is very interesting because we find, therefore, that the number 24 becomes representative of the whole. Now that's very provocative because when we turn to the book of Revelation, we find that there's 24 thrones seated around God's throne in heaven. And we're told that upon these thrones I saw 420 elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. So we have these 24 elders, as it were, sat on these 24 thrones. <clears throat> these are thrones, in terms of the Greek word that's used, uh, their seats assigned to kings or to judges. That's the type of throne that we're looking at here. And notice that, again, these individuals have crowns of gold on their head. Now there's a question mark about who these elders are. Was it literally 24, or will it be, because we're looking at future? And people ask this question. Well, clearly we can see from Chronicles that the Bible uses 24 to represent a complete group. We know that these 24 elders cannot be tribulation believers, those that will go through his time of coming judgment, because we're told... Of the tribulation saints, those that come out of tribulation, and it's one of the elders that's talking to John and explaining about these. So they can't, the elders cannot be those because it's clearly a separate group. Nor can they be angels, because we're told in Revelation 7 verse 11, and all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders. So if the angels are standing about the elders, they cannot themselves be the elders. It's very clear from itself. But nor can it be the nation of Israel. There's some very clear distinguishing characteristics we find. Firstly, they sit on thrones. Well, that's only ever promised to the church, to the bride of Christ. There's this white raiment that they're clothed with. Again, only ever promised to the church. These crowns of gold, which we're told through scripture, are given as rewards for the faithful, for those in the church. And they sing this song of the redeemed. Again, those that have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And they're called elders, also kings and priests. All of these things can only reference the church. And so it seems to be that these 24 elders that we find in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 are actually the believers who by that time are taken from this earth and will stand before the throne in heaven and serve, whilst God then unleashes his wrath on this unbelieving world. We'll look at these details far more when we actually get to... Um, obviously the book of Revelation uh, and some of the other books in the Old Testament which deal with this coming judgment. These elders fall down, they worship. Um, it's interesting what they're singing. Thou art worthy to take the book to open the seals, for you were slain and has redeemed us. Notice what we're told. Us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Clearly this is talking about the believers and so on. We'll come back to that as I say as we move through Scripture. One other quick tangent I just wish to go off on just momentarily, and I'll let you go through the notes in this uh, yourself. But the birth of Christ, typically 25th of December is what the the church uh, assumes, and of course most people perceive that that's when Jesus was born. Well, it wasn't until 354 AD that that date is kind of nailed, and assumed then from that point on that Jesus' birthday was the 1st of December. Uh, originally, uh, sorry, it was actually 440, sorry it was proclaimed uh, there. But originally it was a, 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 um, a Babylonian festival that had become adopted by the Romans, a, fat, a festival called Saturnalia uh, on that day, the 25th of December. Oh, and it's why it's merged, lots of reasons for that. I'm not going to go through these notes. I'm going to let you have a look if you want to. These will all be in the slides uh, that are available afterwards. Um, But you can go through. What's interesting is you go through all of these details. You actually come to the only day that really satisfies all of the criteria from the information we have would actually be the birth of Christ occurring occurring in the autumn of 2 BC, which makes, of course, a nonsense of all the Christmas cards with the wonderful snow scenes and things like that. Um, We'll talk more about that when we get to our, our kind of Christmas time again this year. <clears throat> There's another interesting thing that we can uh, look at, and this is the reason I'm mentioning it here. Is because Elizabeth, you know, there was John the Baptist's mum, was a cousin of Mary, and the wife of a priest named Zacharias. Now, we're told that Zacharias was of the course of Abijah. Now, this is why it's interesting, because it's in this portion of Chronicles that we're given these courses of the priesthoods. Now, we find that when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus, it was the first course of priests that had just taken office. That's recorded in the Jewish Talmud and also by Josephus the historian. Now, that means we can trace back and that Zacharias would have ended his duties on July the 13th 3 BC. Well, if John's um, birth took place 280 days later, because if you remember, as Zacharias comes out, he's struck dumb. And it's pretty much from that point his wife can seize and uh, he's told that he's, they have this child. So If that then is 280 days later falling on, as the text indicates, it would have been, John's birth would have been on April the 19th or 20th, 2 BC, precisely on the Feast of Passover, which is very interesting when you think of one of the key things that John says when he comes into his ministry, Behold the Lamb. John comes announcing the Lamb of God, and interestingly, it would seem he was born on Passover. Well, following that through, because you know, of course, that Jesus was, uh, from an earthly point of view, a cousin of John the Baptist. As soon as Mary gets this vision from Gabriel, she runs to go and see Elizabeth. Immediately, we're told. She makes haste, we're told. Now, presuming she's just become pregnant at that point, that means if we trace that through, 280 days later, Jesus would have been born on the 29th of September, 2 BC, which was also, in that particular year, the first of Tishri or the Feast of Trumpets. So it's very interesting. When you realise how many things God engineers to coincide with the Jewish feast days, this shouldn't be really any surprise. I'll leave that in the notes. There's a lot of information we kind of skipped over there. If you want to dig into it, um, then do so. I've got more study information if you want to take that further yourselves. Okay, let's move on. Chapter 5, we have details of the singers and the musicians. Chapter 26, the organisation of the temple itself. Um, and then, chapter twenty-seven, the civil government is uh, detailed for us, and then finally, David's final message uh, in chapter twenty-eight, and then we get to this wonderful exhortation—the uh, words that we uh, had read to us earlier uh, from Chronicles, uh, First Chronicles, chapter twenty-nine. Uh, just this wonderful thing: the, the people had given these precious stones and treasures, and so on. And then we read, picking up uh, verse nine: "Then the people rejoiced, for that they offered willingly." Because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee. And thou reigns over all, and in thy hand is power and might." And in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thy own have we given thee. For we are strangers before thee, and sojourners, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding. No no one goes on forever. O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee a house for thy holy name comes of thine hand and all is thine own. There's going to be a lot of people that are very surprised when eventually they get to stand before the throne and they realize that God had blessed them with life, with health, with a brain, with intelligence, with the wisdom and the opportunity to make a choice to follow him. And they took all of those things that God had given and they chose to use it for themselves, for their own pleasures here and now. You know, the Bible talks about there being pleasure in sin for a season. Of course sin's pleasurable. There's a lot of things in life that you'll find pleasurable, but they don't bring any lasting fruit. In fact, they actually bring pain, they bring sadness, they bring despondency, and they bring all sorts of other problems along as well. You know, We can cite many examples of, of people that have reached the top from a worldly point of view, and they have nothing. And you can look at many people that have nothing from a worldly point of view and yet know Christ and have everything. Well, We then read that Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king, Uh, instead of David his father and prospered and all Israel obeyed him. And thus David the son of Jesse reigned over all Israel, and that time he reigned over Israel, was forty years, seven years he reigned in Hebron, and thirty three years he reigned in Jerusalem, and he died in a good old age, full of days, riches and honour, and Solomon his son reigned in his stead. So that brings us to the end of First Chronicles. Now Second Chronicles we won't take as much time going through because we're going to look at the history of these kings, and there's only a few kings we want to highlight specifically. Solomon, just to quickly mention, his name is uh, given in different ways in Scripture. Jedediah is a name that's applied to him. Nathan uses this term. Um, Solomon or uh, Sheolomon is the the name that we uh, are familiar with. But also in Proverbs 31 is Lemuel, uh, again another name of Solomon, uh, seemingly given to him by his mum. And also uh, the Koheleth or the preacher in Ecclesiastes. So different names uh, given to Solomon. So if you go through scripture and you see those names, uh, you understand that it's referencing Solomon. And also in uh, Proverbs, uh, the Argor or the collector, because he collected these sayings and so on. Well, Chapter five of Second Chronicles, we get this account of the ark being brought to the temple. And one of the things that we mentioned we're told about there is that the house, the temple itself, was filled with this cloud. It was just so overwhelming. The priest had to leave the place on account of this. We're told that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house. Now, again, I'm going to let you go through in your own time, but we refer to this as the Shekinah glory of God. And there's some scriptural references here that I'll let you go through and have a look at. Um, Ezekiel will eventually prophesy uh, and, and see a vision of this glory of the Lord leaving uh, the temple and so on as a result of Israel's sin. Well chapter 6 we get this prayer of dedication from Solomon uh, at the conclusion of the building of the, the temple and so on um, and then finally the temple itself is sanctified, set apart for the work of the Lord and uh, Solomon, as so the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and I have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. And will forgive their sin and will heal their land. You know, this is a specific promise to Israel. Many people just take it and casually use it. But what we do know, of course, is that God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And that God is without partiality. And God says that if people that are called by his name are willing to humble themselves and pray. And to seek his face. And we've got to be prepared to turn from our wicked ways, That means we repent. We turn in the opposite direction from those things. God says, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. We live in a land that desperately needs God's touch. People have moved so far away from God and from the things of God. We need God in this land and God gives us a way of addressing this problem. I'll leave that with you. Chapter 8 then deals with Solomon's years of conquest as it were. Solomon conquers a number of foreign states, uh, significantly increasing the territory uh, that they have. Again, I'll let you look at these things in detail if you want to. Uh, And then we're given the list of the countries that were overcome, uh, and the countries that paid tribute um, to Solomon, uh, again through this period of time, and became subjugated to Israel and, and, uh, and so on. But the children of Israel we're told, did Solomon make no service? In other words, the people of his own land, his own people, they weren't made to serve. But they were given other roles, uh, chief of his captains and and so on. We find that the Hittites, again, uh, served Israel. The Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. All of these were those that Joshua should have dealt with, hadn't dealt with and eventually they became um, subservient to Israel under Solomon's rule. Solomon built this incredible fleet of ships that used to sail from the Gulf of Aqaba or uh, Gulf of Iliad as it's known today and so on. With Hiram's sailors, uh, a a neighbouring nation, they sailed to distant points uh, such as the land of Ophir. Uh, I'm not sure specifically where that was, there's some suggestions. Uh, But they imported 450 talents of gold or somewhere around about 17 tonnes apparently on one voyage alone. So an incredible enterprise going on during this time. Well, that then leads, of course, to the visit of the Queen of Sheba. And again, something I'll let you take away and review. There is this claim that the Queen of Sheba and Solomon had a child. And that this child then becomes um, the the father, if you like, of the royalty of Ethiopia. Um, The the child in question is is Menelik. Um, so that was born apparently, um, and you, the, the Ethiopians still to this day believe that they can trace their royal line back to this point. Now it's sketchy in terms of the the biblical support for this, um, but some of them even believe that the Ark had been taken, a duplicate had been placed in the the temple, and so on. And the Ark had been taken down to Ethiopia at this point. Well, actually, I don't agree with that because we find scripturally that the Ark appears in Jerusalem even later than this point. But there is something we'll look at in just a short while. So just some notes there. I'll let you go through that in your own time. But even up until, as recently as um, uh, we get to um, um, Haile Selassie, um, who up to 1975, uh, again, believed that he was a descendant or could trace his lineage back to this Menelik who they believed was the son of Solomon. So just an interesting uh, aside there. Uh, I'll let you uh, dig into that a bit further if you want to. We're told about the, the goal. It's interesting the amount of salary, in a sense, that came to Solomon was 603 score and six. Now that may kind of be interesting because it's the same number that we find in revelation the 666 and while solomon in some ways is seen as a good king and certainly the nation becomes its wealthiest at this point there's also a lot of negative signs it's that the seal of solomon sometimes people talk of the star of david we'll show you in just a moment but the comparisons with solomon are always negative take luke twelve twenty seven. 27 that solomon in all his glory is not as good as You see, all those comparisons we find, Solomon is kind of put down in comparison. So there's some very interesting things if you want to do a side study of these things. Uh, And this so-called Star of David or the Seal of Solomon um, has all sorts of occultic overtones. I'll let you uh, dig into those things as well if you want to. Uh, This is just to try and whet your appetite. But what we do know is that under Solomon's rule, the kingdom extended to the Euphrates River and to Egypt's border. He had this incalculable wealth that had been really through his trading and so on, um, but it didn't meet the, the demands of the Abrahamic covenant. And so we still know that there has got to yet be a king on the throne of Israel to fulfill all the prophecies given to Abraham. And we're told again the details of these are all recorded. And uh, finally, that final verse says, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. Okay, so we get to chapter 10. Rehoboam now takes over. We find that Rehoboam goes to Shechem. Now, quite interestingly, Shechem becomes this place... Um, where Joshua uh, establishes the, uh, ratifies the covenant that had been made with Moses, and it becomes the, the capital of the northern half of Israel in a sense. And we find this individual Jeroboam, who had fled to Egypt under Solomon, he now returns and he's very respected. He comes from this area. Rehoboam is the only son of Solomon that's mentioned, um, but now goes to Shechem in an attempt to reunite the nation. No doubt he's aware that there is already problems, uh, and anyway, he has this opportunity to ask the uh, the older people what he should do how what kind of king should he be and as a result of that they say that he should be a good king he should listen to the people but he rejects their advice and instead Rehoboam decides he's going to listen to the younger advisors and take their advice well this causes this split in the nation And as we get to chapter 11 we find then this kingdom divides we find we have the northern kingdom of Israel which really just draws this line from the tribe of Dan and Ephraim upwards. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, really just the the main tribe is Judah, but obviously Simeon is part of that, there's some Levites that are part of that, and so on as well. Uh, And Benjamin tends to fall into that area. What is interesting to note uh, is that in Ezekiel, a vision is given, in this, this dry bones vision, that declares that the house of Israel and Judah will be joined together as one. And what's so interesting is that we live in the days where we've seen that take place. In 1948, that became a reality, and they moved back into the land of Israel. So, incredible fulfillment of some of these prophecies, even in the days that we're living in. So, again, so many things. You can see why we started off. I started off with somewhere around about a thousand slides, and we had to chop so much out. It's just, Chronicles is such a fabulous book to dig into. Well, moving on and drawing to a close, which is typically what preachers say when we're halfway through. No, just don't worry. In chapter 12, we get an attack by Egypt on Rehoboam. Rehoboam, uh, let's just read this. It came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. And this becomes a repeating pattern. And it came to pass in the fifth year of Rehoboam that Shishak king of Egypt came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord. You know, God will sometimes allow things in our lives to go wrong because we walk away from him. And then we say, Lord, why has this happened? And then we come to that realisation that we've stopped trusting, that we've decided we were going to trust in the arm of flesh, try and trust ourselves. And God allows these things to take place. Why? Because he loves us. Because he wants to bring us back. Because he knows, because he created us, that the best thing for us is a relationship with him. Rehoboam, again, another one of these kings learning the hard way. Well, after Rehoboam, his son Abijah becomes the next king. doesn't reign for a huge amount of time. Very brief summary, he reigned for three years, strenuous but unsuccessful effort to bring back the northern tribes, uh, that just didn't work at all, in a very costly battle, 500,000 of the army of Israel perished on the field of battle, and we're told that he walked in all the sins of his father, really sad testimony in a sense. Well then we find that his son, Asa then, reigns between chapter 14 to 16 of Chronicles, and we find that Asa is a good king. There's some really positive things said. It's under Asa that we see a revival. He's one of five specific kings, as I mentioned, that God uses to bring the southern kingdom back to him. Northern kingdom, by the way, they had 19 kings. All of them were bad. There was only a good one amongst them. Now, these 20 kings in the south, five of them were good. There's Ten of them, there's positive things said, but there's only five of them that really are um, serving. There's Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And they're the ones we're going to briefly look at. Just a couple of things to mention with Asa. We find that Abijah slept with his fathers. Asa, his son, reigns in his stead. And we're told that Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he took away the altars of the strange gods and the high places and broke down the images and cut down the groves. One of the things we find is this battle. We find that Zerah the Ethiopian comes out against him with a million man army and 300 chariots and they came to this place Marisha. And Asa goes out against him. They don't know what to do. Totally outnumbered Israel are at this point. And they go out to battle. And Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, let not man prevail against thee. Well, as a result of this, we read that the Lord smote the Ethiopians. Israel had given this incredible victory because he trusted God. He realised he couldn't win the battle on his own. Asa brings about a number of reforms, um, which are all positive things. Um, the Spirit of God came upon Azariah the son of Oded. And he goes and he speaks to Asa and says, Hear you me, Asa. And all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Just a stern warning that's given. And you see why God gave this warning because when you go into the following chapter, chapter 16, we find an account and I'm just going to give you the summary here. But Baasha, the king of Israel, comes up against him. And rather than trusting in God, he decides he's going to try, try and make an alliance with the king of Syria, Ben Hadid. And God eventually sends a prophet to him saying, Why didn't you trust me? You know, this is indicative of all of us where, you know, there's a real big problem that we can't solve. What do we do? We go to God. And then there's another problem. Think, Oh, I can deal with that one myself. And we end up making a mess of it and end up with so many problems. We've got to learn to trust God in everything. Remember that if we don't trust God, it's unbelief and that's sin. It's displeasing to God and it's damaging to us. We need to trust God, whatever, whether it's big or whether it's small. So this account in 2 Chronicles 16, I think, is one of the biggest lessons that we can learn from the book of Kings. Don't just trust God with the big things you can't deal with. Trust Him with the simple things. Trust Him with all the the things, your home, your family, your career, your children, everything, and trust Him to God's hands. This great verse we find in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. And then the prophet says to us, Herein thou hast done foolishly. Therefore, from henceforth thou shalt have wars. You know, you try to do it your own way, fine. Go do it your own way. People say, why is there so many problems in the world? Well, it's because of this attitude. It's because we try and do it ourselves. And when we try and do things without God's help, it goes wrong. But again, God wants to show himself strong on all those whose hearts are perfect toward him. Well, we then move on to King Jehoshaphat, another one of the good kings of Israel. Lots of positive things can be said. He's the fourth king of Judah. Um, at 35 years old, he begins to reign, partly because his uh, dad's now poorly. This king actually ends up with this disease in his feet and so on. And we're told the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto under, under Balaam but sought to the Lord God of his father and walked in his commandments and not after the doings of Israel. Joseph, that's a great king. God establishes his kingdom and we're told, and his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. That's a great way. If you're going to have your heart lifted up, lift them up in the ways of the Lord. He takes down these high places. He rids the land of these things and so on. He sends out people around the land to teach the law of God. This is wonderful. He's sending out, in a sense, preachers that are going to teach people what the law of God says. Jehoshaphat was a, was a great king. But even Jehoshaphat makes some foolish mistakes. He makes this alliance with Ahab, who's one of the worst kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. He makes an alliance for some reason. His son had married Ahab's daughter. And Jehoshaphat agrees to go to war against Syria with Ahab. Ahab asks 400 of his prophets, shall we go to war? And they say, yeah, no problem, go on if you go. They speak very presumptuously on God's behalf. And they assure Ahab of the victory. Jehoshaphat's not content. He says, isn't there a prophet of the Lord that we could ask? And have says, well, yeah, this is uh, Micaiah, uh, he's available, we can ask him. But the problem is, he says, I hate him. And the reason he says he hates him, he never prophesies good to me. Let <laughs> we'll me ask you this question, how many you know, uh, of us are happy to inquire of God if God gives us the answer we want to hear? You see, that's the situation. You know, if God's going to tell us what we want, we, we'd ask God all the time, wouldn't we? But the problem is, sometimes we ask God and he doesn't give us the answer we want to hear. And that's when it has to come back to trust again. So Micaiah prophesies a defeat uh, and also mentions that Ahab's prophets were lying. That went over really well with them. Um, and Ahab eventually goes anyway and dies in his battle. And so on. Uh, as a result of this, Jehoshaphat is rebuked. God sends the prophet Hananiah to go and warn him and saying, why did you make this ungodly alliance? But we're told, nevertheless, there are good things found in thee because he's taken away the groves and caused people to seek God. Well, that... Brings us on to the next section. Chapter 20, uh, we find again that Moab then come up against Jehoshaphat to battle. This situation, what is he going to do with Jehoshaphat? We're told, Feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast through all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord, even out of all the cities of Judah, and they came to seek the Lord. And so, they trust God. It's interesting, actually, what we find here is, God says, you're not going to need, need to fight. This is a battle the Lord will take on for you. But what we find that Jehoshaphat actually ends up doing here is taking the musicians and he appoints the musicians and he sends them out first. Now, I just want you to make this clear. This is not that they're cannon fodder. All right? We don't just use musicians and send them out so that they get caught first. No, no, they went out to worship the Lord. And they go ahead of the army, praising the Lord, saying, for his mercy endures forever. And we read, and when... They began to sing and to praise the Lord's ambushes against the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. So God gives this incredible victory. Eventually, Jehoshaphat dies, and uh, then we find, moving on, Yes, right at the end, he made another alliance with uh, Ahaziah, Ahab's son. And as a result of that, he lost the entire sh- uh, fleet of ships. This reminds us of 1 Corinthians verse 3, which talks about our work. And says, you know, if we build with gold, silver, and precious stones, the things that will survive purifying, then we'll receive a reward. But if we sow to the flesh, if we live our lives to things of this world, we will suffer loss, just as Jehoshaphat does here. So many wonderful lessons. Great testament that we find though of Jehoshaphat he had this testament, this is from 2 Chronicles 22 that he sought the Lord with his whole heart and then finally Jehoram his son becomes king 32 years old when he began to reign, reigns in Jerusalem uh, Elijah prophesied against him and eventually he dies an incurable bowel disease and then we have Ahaziah his son and Athaliah uh, these two individuals so Athaliah is married to Joram here It's a very tangled web. Ahaziah was Jehoram's youngest uh, son. Uh, All the other brothers have been killed. He only reigned for one year and he was killed by the Syrian army while supporting again, not learning the mistakes of the past, um, Jehoram of Israel. As I said, his mother, Athaliah, was the daughter of King Ahab of Israel. And we're told that he also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counsellor to do wickedly. Wherefore he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab. For they were his counsellors after the death of his father to his destruction. We need to be careful who it is we listen to. Just looking at these two kingdoms together, as I said, Israel go from bad to worse. Judah have a few good kings amongst them we find actually we've got two Jehorams so don't get confused one in Israel one in uh, Judah both ruling and reigning about the same time historically there's also two Ahaziahs which can make it a little bit tricky what we find is that Ahab his daughter was Athaliah who had married Jehoram so actually uh, Athaliah who becomes queen of Israel has a, a husband who's called Jehoram and also a brother who's called Jehoram as well so it gets a little bit confusing if you're reading through the text but when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal seed of the house of Judah. That's another one of those satanic attacks to stop the seed of the woman getting down to the Messiah. With a number of these we've talked about in Scripture. This one here. There's others we find all through Scripture where Satan desperately tries to stop this royal line coming down to the Messiah. Joash we find was hid. For six years, while this wicked queen is reigning over the land, eventually she's dealt with and uh, she actually pulls down part of the temple as part of this uh, situation. But then a priest, uh, who's actually marries into the family as well, uh, ends up uh, raising this next king, Jehoiada, is promoted to high priest. He's true to God. And then Joash, who becomes, as I say, the next king, um, is at this young age promoted Um, And we see this this change then. Athaliah is then killed and so on. So again, just to see, this wicked queen Athaliah, married to Jehoram. His brothers are killed. And then we find that his son Ahaziah becomes uh, the king, only for a very short time. And then Athaliah herself rules, tries to kill everybody, but Joash survives. And then Jehoiada, who's the priest, who actually marries Athaliah's daughter, is the one that brings up Joash and then gets him eventually onto the throne. And Joash is a good king, as uh, another one of the, the positive kings that we find. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. And we're told that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. But sadly, after the death of Jehoiada, princes come to Judah and made obeisance to the king. And they come and say, Oh, king, you're really good. You're a great king. And they Build up his pride and his arrogance. And we find that he listens to them. And as a result of this, his heart's turned away. And then sadly, he ends up killing Zechariah, who comes to prophesy. This is the son of Jehoiada the priest. Zechariah comes to prophesy. And they find that as a result of this, they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. I mention this because if you remember... In the New Testament, Jesus talks about um, those that kill the prophets. And Zechariah is mentioned, this is that individual. And this kind of is the last of these prophets at this point that is mentioned, uh, that is killed by the leaders of the nation. Jesus likens himself to this. We then get to Amaziah. We're told that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart. It's kind of half there. Isaiah becomes the next king. This is the king when uh, uh, Isaiah starts his ministry. Again, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to this father Amaziah did, and he sought God in the days of Zechariah, um, who had an understanding in the visions of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. We find once again he goes off, because we find that when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. He transgressed against the Lord his God. Then twenty-seven, chapter 27, we have Jotham becoming the next king. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all His Father, as I did. Howbeit, he entered not into the temple of the Lord, and the people did yet corruptly. You know, people will follow our lead; they'll follow the things that we do. The classic case here that he didn't really serve God as he should have done, and so many of these things we can see pictures and types of our own lives. Get to King Ahaz, twenty years old when he began to reign, reigned sixteen years. But he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And we're told that he does these horrible things, burning uh, incense in the valley of the son of him, and burn his children in the fire after abominations of the heathen. You know, to you and I, that sounds horrible. How could anybody do that, burning your own children? And yet, you may have heard this week, there was a bit of a uh, thing in the news about a young woman has put a video on YouTube of herself having an abortion. You know, we look at scripture, we look at these things and we say, that's horrific, how could somebody burn their children? Well, you know, the womb should be the safest possible place for a child. And yet today it's become one of the most dangerous places for a child to be. The Valley of Hinnom, as I mentioned earlier, it was associated with human sacrifice um, to various pagan gods, uh, Molech and, and so on, very much condemned by God in scripture. It was south uh, and west of Jerusalem. Uh, it a place that also becomes known as Gehenna. Um, the Valley of Hinnom, and also becomes then seen as a type of hell. There was a continual burning of garbage there and everything else. Um, so this phrase Gehenna comes from the Valley of Hinnom where these sacrifices and so on took place. So. Well, we then get to King Hezekiah from chapter 29 through to 32. Hezekiah is a good king overall. He brings these incredible reforms. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. In Second Kings, we're also told he removed the high places. He broke down the images. He also got rid of this serpent. You remember back in Numbers, Moses had got this serpent, put it on a pole and so on. Well, that had become something that had become worshipped. And he says, no, I don't care what it represented. It's going because it's pulling your hearts away from God. Hezekiah, good king, celebrated the Passover. We're told in chapter 30, verse 5, for they had not done it for a long time. And Hezekiah re-establishes this. He sorts the temple out, re-establishes it. If you remember, Athaliah had knocked parts down where well, he starts to sort that out. But Assyria then invade. Israel at this point are taken captive. But Hezekiah, totally outmatched by the Assyrian forces, trusts in God. And we read, Hezekiah speaking to his own people. Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. For they be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. We were singing a song earlier, God of angel armies. That's the God that Hezekiah trusted in. We could talk a lot about faith and why we need to have faith. J. Vernon McGee simply just says, it's not a matter of believing enough because you could believe the wrong thing. There are many people who die as martyrs for fanatic beliefs. If they can have ever so much faith... But it's in the wrong thing or the wrong person. You know, our faith needs to be in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, It is not thy hold on Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not even thy faith, though that be the instrument, it is Christ's blood and merit. Great quotes. So God gives Hezekiah this assurance of victory. This army of Assyrian, Assyrian hosts, 185,000 then, are destroyed by these angel armies, as it were. One angel seemingly involved here. Uh, this Assyrian king, Shnekerab, then returns to his own country. And we know from history and from what the Bible tells us that he was then murdered by his own sons. So God delivered Hezekiah, saved Hezekiah, uh, out of the hand of the Assyrians and so on. And again, Israel become very prosperous at this time. Eventually Hezekiah becomes sick. He seeks the Lord and God adds 15 years to his life, but two significant things occur. One, Manasseh is born. And secondly, God then tests Hezekiah. And one of the ways he tested him was by sending Babylonian envoy. And they come, this, the envoys of Merodach, uh, Baladan, and they come and they look around. Hezekiah is so proud to show them what we've got here. And he shows them the temple and all the wealth and everything else. And that becomes a stepping stone to then eventually Babylon coming back saying, we want all of that. And it leads to the Babylonian invasions that are are coming. Well, this young man, Manasseh, just 12 years old when he becomes king, becomes the worst king that Israel ever had. And again, you can read 2 Chronicles 33 will tell you of the wickedness, the abominations he did, uh, and so on. Um, But we are told... Let's just uh, move through here. Yeah, He was guilty of sorcery, divination, witchcraft. Uh, And as a result of this, he's taken to Babylon. We read, Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And God then brings him back to the land. Why is it that we wait till we're in a position that we're in affliction before we seek God? Why don't we seek God when things are going well? Why do we wait till God allows those things in our lives to wake us up? His son Ammon, another bad king, uh, just a very short range, just two years, did that was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh did. But because Manasseh at the end of his life had um, repented and turned to God, we find that the next king, Ammon's son, who was Manasseh's grandson, is this Josiah. Incredible individual, Josiah. Eight years old when he becomes king and he sets about these incredible reforms. He decides he's going to start to repair the house of God in 2 Chronicles 34 verse 8 and finally they, as part of this repair process they find a book of the law. It's taken before the king, he reads it and he rips his clothes in despair because he realises that as a nation they've moved so far away from God and so he goes to inquire of a lady called Hulda, who was the prophetess at the time saying what should we do? Well Holder replies and basically says that God is going to bring judgment upon Judah because of all of the the wickedness that's been there because of these kings. But Josiah himself humbles himself before God and brings about the greatest national reform since the time of David. He reads the law before all the nation. Imagine that. Imagine a prime minister standing up and reading God's word to the country. Well, that's what he did. And Israel, of course, are reminded of God's covenant with them. One of the strange things that we find those. Josiah has kept this Passover, which was a great thing, a wonderful thing. But he also told the priests to put the holy ark in the house which Solomon the son of David, king of Israel, did build. It shall not be a burden upon your soldiers. The question, of course, is why wasn't the ark in the temple anyway? Why were the priests carrying it? Well... This plot kind of thickens, because it doesn't say, of course, that the priests complied with this at all. They had taken the Ark, and obviously the mercy seat which sits on top of it. Clearly out of the jurisdiction of Manasseh, this was part of the, uh, the what the Jews understood, that the Ark had been taken away from Manasseh because he was such a bad king. Josiah is now saying, put it back. But seemingly, the Ark had been taken not just out of the temple or out of Jerusalem, but possibly even out of the country as well. We read, after this, when Josiah had prepared the temple for what? Well, I believe, to put the ark back. Necho, king of Egypt, came to fight against Karshemesh by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. This is one of the most bizarre things in the Bible. Why? Because Necho was not coming to fight Josiah. In fact, he was coming to fight Judah's enemies. And for some reason, Josiah goes out against him. The king of Egypt says, I come not against thee this day, against the house wherewith I have war for God commanded me to make haste and he says to King Josiah forbear thee from meddling with God he's very speaking on behalf of God and they were actually told in the text nevertheless Josiah would not turn his face from him but disguised himself that he might fight with him and hearkened not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God so even the Holy Spirit inspired text is telling us that what Necho said was from God's mouth that God was with him in what way Well, the conjecture is that Necho comes up having the Ark of the Covenant with him. And Josiah says, I want it back. Well, eventually, Josiah dies. Now, this leads to an interesting controversy and a a suggestion. Again, I'll let you look through some of these things. But the suggestion is that the Ark itself did actually go down to Ethiopia. And it was at this point that Josiah is saying, I want it back there's a very interesting reference in Isaiah 18 that the Ethiopians are going to offer a gift to the Messiah when he comes. And if you remember, when Jesus was about to be uh, crucified, in fact, when Jesus was crucified, there's an Ethiopian who's the head treasurer of the house of the Ethiopians under the queen, has come to Jerusalem. Why did he come? That's like sending your, your top financial advisor or the, the person that's head of the treasury to a foreign state. It was official business. What was he doing? Well, the question was, possibly, that he was saying, is it time to bring this gift? Not the box itself. That was made out of gold, wood overlaid with gold. That would be perishable. But the mercy seat itself was made of solid gold. And it was actually a throne. And the conjecture is that it's this throne, the mercy seat, that will be given to the Messiah when he comes. When this Ethiopian unit comes at the time of the crucifixion, he gets the message, now is not the time. But of course Jesus is coming back. The Messiah will come and sit on his throne. And this may well be the throne that he'll sit on. A very interesting study. I'll let you uh, dig into that if you want to a bit further. We can talk more on Thursday if we're able to come to the Bible study. Right, we are at the end. So chapter 36, we then just get to the final days of the the kings of of Judah now. Josiah, we just said, dies in battle. We find that Jehoahaz reigns for just three months and then he's taken to Egypt by Necho. Jehoiakim then reigns for 11 years Jehoiachin reigns. A blood curse is placed upon him. We've talked about that previously and we will address it again when we get to Jeremiah. And then finally, Jehoiachin's brother, Zedekiah, then is appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. He reigns for 11 years and then finally taken away captive in his final siege. And We read, of course, that the nation mocked the messengers of God. Isn't it just like it is today? They despised despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against the people. So there was no remedy. See, God didn't want to do this. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, we're told. But you know, if people don't listen, judgment will come. And we're told, therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees. And Nebuchadnezzar comes up and we know, of course, what happens from history and from the records in scripture. All the vessels that Hezekiah had proudly shown off are now captured and they're taken back to Egypt. And we're told, and them that escaped the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. One of the tragic elements here is Zedekiah there was a prophecy that he would never see Babylon and yet there was another prophecy that he'd be taken to Babylon how do you reconcile the two well Nebuchadnezzar took him killed his sons before his eyes and then plucked his eyes out so he never saw Babylon but he was taken there incredible detail in those prophecies and again, we're told to fulfill the word of the law by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land enjoyed her sabbaths. Israel was supposed to let the land lay fallow every seventh year. They hadn't done it. And God says, right, I want my time for my land back. And so for 70 years they go to Babylon. And then the book of 2 Chronicles concludes... As the book of Ezra begins, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth has the Lord God of heaven given me, and he's charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is uh, there, uh, there among you of all his people? The Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. And that's where the book concludes. That It's setting us up now for the return from his captivity. And we will pick it up from there next time. Let's just bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your incredible word. Father, we thank you for these details. We, Father, thank you for the lessons that apply to our own lives. Father, so much information, so much to try and unravel and to take on board. But, Father, speak to us. Help us to... To draw out of these things, Lord, the things that you want us to, to know. But Lord, most importantly, that we need to trust you. Lord, so many of these kings could have been so much better if only they'd have trusted you. And Lord, those kings that were good were good because they trusted you. Lord, help us not to be unbelieving, but to believe. To trust that you truly are God, that you made us, you loved us, and you want to walk with us, and you want us to walk with you. Father, by your grace help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.